the cultural role of Chinese poetry. For several millennia, Chinese poetry has had a unique role to play. Ordinarily, we think of the relationship between poetry and the world as a one-way street. Social and cultural circumstances shape the composition of a poetic text that in one way or another represents or expresses these shaping forces. Rarely, though, do we see poetry as shaping those forces that shaped it. In this respect, Chinese poetry stands out as unique. Its representation of the forces that shaped it has in turn had its own shaping or formative effect on those forces. Here, in effect, we have a two-way street. Social and cultural forces help to form Chinese poetry, which in turn, by the specific way it represents those forces, has a counter effect of transforming those very forces. Through this genuine interplay between poetry and the world, Chinese poets and their readers have acquired an extraordinary capacity to intervene in state affairs and private life in decisive ways seldom seen anywhere else. In the chapters of this anthology, you'll get a glimpse of the social and cultural circumstances out of which Chinese poetry arose. Meanwhile, you'll see many of the different means by which Chinese poetry shaped and colored Chinese life during different historical periods. As you finish reading this book, you will understand how this complex interplay between poetical text and world has made possible the unique poetic culture that is China. Poetry in the State From the earliest times, Chinese poetry has been inseparably bound up with the politics of the state in ways seldom seen elsewhere. It would be hard to find a better illustration of this point than the ancient Fuxi use of the Book of Poetry, Shijing the Poetry, the oldest extant poetry collection, comprising 305 poems dating back to the early Zhou. Fuxi, literally presenting a poem, refers to the practice whereby high officials of different states would use Shijing poems to convey their state's political views and positions at a diplomatic encounter. Specifically, Fuxi practitioners attempted to steer the course of politics by translating one or more Shijing poems into an imaginative analogy for a political situation or position. And because this tradition called for all parties to communicate almost solely through a performative presentation of the poetry, all the political maneuvering would then take place around the poetry, and efforts were made by the rival parties to exploit it to their advantage. Poetic Identity and Enduring Fame Besides the tangible benefits of officialdom, poetry promised a much greater reward, an opportunity for lasting fame. Forging a poetic identity that will be remembered forever is very much a creative activity. 
a poet might make use of his own unique experiences, possibly blending these with conventional poetic personae, or he might simply recast stock images, motifs, and tropes in ways that bear his signature. The reader, meanwhile, is not passive either, often examining a work against the poet's known life or conjuring up an authorial presence from a style. The works that have stood the test of time are simply those with the capacity to keep generating in readers this recreative process. Indeed, it is out of this process that the greatest Chinese poetic identities have emerged. Chu Yuan, the moralist and patriot, Tao Qian, the hermit poet, Wang Wei, the Buddha poet, Li Bai, the immortal poet, Du Fu, the sage poet, Li He, the ghost poet, and so on. Chu Yuan is the first great poetic identity produced by the Chinese literary tradition. In chapter 2, Stephen Owen probes the interesting and unique dynamic behind the formation of this identity. Since we can't verify the real existence of Chu Yuan as a loyal Chu minister and the author of Li Sao, Encountering Misery, Stephen Owen argues this great poetic identity is largely the brainchild of three prominent Han readers. Jia Yi, Sima, Qian, and Wang Yi. As Owen points out, the readerly creation of Chu Yuan was driven by many factors. Jia Yi's and Sima Qian's sorrow over falling into disfavor and their effort to inculcate Confucian moral values being the most noteworthy. Nature, the universe, and Taoist transcendence. For officials disillusioned with court politics, poetry offered a unique opportunity. After withdrawing from the court, they could turn to nature as a means of escape. By writing about nature in verse, however, they managed to make of it an emotional refuge. Imaginatively transformed, the nature depicted in their poetry becomes a place of spiritual transcendence. No longer merely an actual place, it now becomes a site invested with religious or moral significance through the practices they associated with it. Appointment to the imperial court was a dream, after which most literati poets strove, not least through excellence in poetic composition. However, court politics ceased to inspire great poetry after Li Sao, even becoming anathema to poetic achievement. Over and over, we find poetic genius incapable of producing great work until after withdrawal from politics into a private sphere. The famous remark, only when one is in dire straits does one's poetry become refined. Athley describes the phenomenon. Nature is the favored locale of retirement for officials disillusioned by court politics 
attracting Chinese literati by its remoteness from the political world or by its soothing and uplifting powers. The earliest example is perhaps that of Bo Yi and Shu Qi, who declined the Shang throne and fled to Shuoyang Mountain. Their choice of hunger rather than disrepute is praised by Confucius as a great act of defiance against unrighteousness. Many centuries later, the seven worthies of the bamboo grove furnish an example of nature being used as the staging ground for an even more radical form of defiance against the political establishment. Although it's impossible to verify that these seven eminent figures actually lived together as a close community in a certain bamboo grove, it's undoubtedly in the world of nature that they performed their outlandish acts, binge drinking, talk, taking deadly mineral drugs, practicing nudism, and so on, all calculated to ridicule the hypercritical and repressive Sima regime. As shown in chapter 7 by Nan Xu Qian, these worthies had an even more ambitious goal, to turn the philosophical teachings of Laozi and Zhuangzi into a bona fide lifestyle of absolute freedom or transcendence. Their vision of transcendence is both physical and spiritual. In a famous essay, Ji Kang wrote about attaining physical transcendence through longevity drugs, but in poetry, both he and Ran Ji portrayed Zhuangzi's perfected man more as a spiritual embodiment of the cosmic Tao. Nature, Meditation, and Buddhist Enlightenment Enlightenment is the word we typically use when speaking of the spiritual transcendence sought or achieved by Buddhists. This word choice is judicious, as it aptly emphasizes transcendence as a state of mind. Since enlightenment is to be achieved through mental concentration, the tranquil world of nature offers an ideal setting for a Buddhist's spiritual quest. Providing not only the tranquility conducive to mental concentration, but also a prime object of meditation. By recording his engagement with nature, a Buddhist poet produces a new kind of nature poetry, quite different from that of Taoist-minded poets like Tao Qian. As borne out by poems of three eminent Buddhist poets examined in this book, Shen Yue, Han Shan, and Wang Wei, Women as poetic subject and as writers. So far, women have hardly figured in the writing of Chinese poetry, either as poetic subject or as an active force. To be sure, a significant number of love poems in the Book of Poetry show women expressing a full gamut of feelings, trust, devotion, estrangement, love and hate, erotic yearnings, and so on. But since Han exegetes 
interpreted these songs as ethico-political allegory. They practically hollowed out any genuine female sensibility, and thus reduced women to mere poetic personae to be co-opted by male poets seeking to express feelings about lords or patrons. Poetry and Authorship The Songs of Chu The Songs of Chu is an anthology of poetry whose final version was compiled and annotated by Wang Yi around the turn of the second century, but whose contents stretch from works by Wang Yi himself back to perhaps the 4th century BCE. Some contemporary scholars, trying to examine the evidence of fresh, are uncertain what some of these poems are, when they were composed, and what they mean. From the last century BCE on to the vast majority of contemporary East Asian scholars, there has been complete certainty about who wrote these poems and what they mean. There are local disputes about authorship and dating, but these occur on a background of shared premises, if we ask about their place in a literary culture, perhaps the best period to consider is the Han, when those now ossified premises were taking shape. Many of the earliest poems and some of the clearly Han works invoke religious practices of the southern part of the Han Empire, the old kingdom of Chu. The Han court itself engaged in such religious practices, but these were not fully understood and often were despised by the literate elite of the Han court. In other words, we have the works of the Chu Qi as they entered a profoundly different intellectual climate in which they needed a new context to make them comprehensible. As the meaning of the poems of the Book of Poetry came to be dependent on the intentions of the putative editor Confucius, so this body of southern poetry came to be dependent on an author, Chu Yuan, with all the works in the anthology attributed either to him, to supposed disciples like Song Yu, or to Han imitators. Without an author, no one would have known what to make of these poems. Chu Yuan, as a historical person, whose experiences in the true court were the reason for composing his poems, was central to their Han interpretation. That need shaped the gradual formation of the story of Chu Yuan, as much as the story of Chu Yuan shaped the new interpretation of the poems. The story of Chu Yuan's life took shape gradually through the Han. Indeed, many central details of his life are still hotly contested, New attributions over the course of the first century BCE forced alterations in the biography, even as the interpretation of those poems was in turn shaped by the biography.
The main text Li Sao is in 92 four-line stanzas with a verse coda. There is nothing like it earlier, and everything like it that was written later was composed in its shadow. He begins by telling of ancestry, birth, and nature. This was unprecedented in Chinese literature. We can read this as the statement of a historical person representing himself in figurative and mythic terms, but we can also read this in the voice of the reciter introducing himself in the voice of a possibly historical figure who has faded into myth. Despite the names and dates, nothing in the poem explicitly ties it to Chu in the 4th century BCE. Of the god-king Gaoyang, I am the far offspring. My late honored sire bore the name of Boyong. The shedding stars aligned with the f- year's first month. Ginying was the day that I came down. He scanned and he delved into my first measure. From the portents my sire gave these noble names. The name that he gave me was Upright Standard, and my formal title was Holy Poise. Such bounty I had of beauty within. This was doubled with fair appearance. I wore mantles of lovage and remote angelica, strung autumn orchids to hang from my sash. Before we turn to the figure of Chu Yuan that was taking shape in the Han, we need to note a few things. The mythical ruler of high antiquity, Gaoyang, was one of the two lineages from which all the rulers and great aristocratic clans claimed descent. Although this is alien to the meritocratic culture in which the Chu Yuan story developed, Chu Yuan's self-introduction is purely aristocratic, in a way that was as alien to Han intellectuals as it was to all later readers. He is good not for any specific moral quality, but because his lineage and his auspicious time of birth if Sima Qian attributes historically correct political judgment to him, that is Sima Qian and not Li Sao, he is a man utterly without particular virtues. His is an absolute goodness, derived purely from his lineage and the astrological felicity of his birth. His inner beauty is matched by wearing aromatic plants but this quickly shifts to the swift passage of time and the decay of plants. From his own aging, he shifts to worry about the aging of the fairest, taken as a figure for the king. This then turns to offering to lead the king on the right way. The king, beloved, however, believes slander and turns against Chu Yun. Chinese does not mark gender. And we have here a good example of how the story shapes understanding. Although part of the following passage clearly refers to kings, other terms unmistakably suggest the courtship of goddess.
the Holy One, and her fickleness. The Chu Yuan story makes these figure for Chu Yuan's devotion to King Huai. They fled swiftly from me. I could not catch them. I feared the years passing would keep me no company. At dawn, I would pluck magnolia on bluffs. In the twilight on aisles, I culled undying herbs. Days and months sped past. They did not long linger. Springtimes and autumns altered in turn. I thought on things growing, on the fall of their leaves, and feared for the fairest, drawing toward dark. Cling to your prime, forsake what is rotting. Why not change from this measure of yours? Drive a fine steed, go off at a gallop. I will now take the lead, ride ahead on the road. The three kings of old were pure and unblemished, where all things of sweet scent indeed were. Shen's pepper was there, together with Cassia, white Angelica, Basil were not strong alone. Such shining grandeur had kings Yao and Shung. They went the true way, they found the path. But slouching and shambling were kings Jie and Zhou. They walked at hazard on side paths. Those men of faction had ill-gotten pleasures. Their road went in shadow, narrow, unsafe. Not for myself came this dread of doom. I feared my king's chariot soon would be tipped. In haste, I went dashing in front and behind, till I came to the tracks of our kings before. Lord Iris did not fathom my nature within. Instead, he believed ill words. He glowered in rage. I knew well artful words had brought me these woes, yet I bore through it, I could not forswear. I pointed to heaven to serve as my warrant. It was all for the cause of the Holy One. To me at first firm word had been given. She regretted it later, made excuses. I made no grievance at this break between us but was hurt that the Holy One so often changed. Chu Yuan then withdraws. We know that aromatic plants were planted near shrines to attract the god or goddess and used by religious practitioners, often described as shamans or female shamakas, terms borrowed from Siberian religious practices. As in the preceding section, this religious theme alternates with the political, here a denunciation of the age. If Chu Yuan is good by birth, in an imagined polity where his position is guaranteed by who he is, what he hates most is a world where strug- people struggle to get ahead, whether by favor or merit, which was as much the Han world as it was the world of the late warring states. I watered my orchids in all their nine tracks and planted basil in 100 rods. I made plots for p- 
Jalapeno and for the wintergreen, mixed with wild ginger and sweet angelica. I wished stalks and leaves would stand high and flourish. I looked toward the season when I might reap. If they withered and dried, it would cause me no hurt. I would grieve if such sweetness went rotting in weeds. Throngs thrust themselves forward in craving and greed. They never are fully sated in things that they seek. They show mercy to self by less measure others. In them the heart stirs to malice and spite. Such a headlong horse race, each hot in pursuit, is not a thing that thrills my own heart. Old age comes on steadily, soon will be here. I fear my fair name will not be fixed firmly. At dawn I drink dew that dropped from magnolia. In twilight are blooms from chrysanthemums shed. If my nature be truly comely, washed utterly pure, what hurt can I have in long wanness from hunger? After more lamenting his fate and refusing to change, he decides to go roaming. At this point, he encounters a female figure, early interpreted as sister, though we do not know whether this is meant literally or figuratively. Then came the sister, tender and inciting, enticing. Mild of manner, she upbraided me thus. She said, Gun was unyielding, he fled into hiding, and at last died untimely on moors of Mount Yu. Why such wide culling, such love of the fair, in you alone bounty of beautiful raiment? They stack stinkweed, filling their rooms, you alone stand aloof, and do not accept. No swaying of the throngs, person by person. No one discerns this my nature within. Now men rise together, each favors his friends. Why do you stand alone and not listen to me? Here in the Li Sao itself is the first in a long line, a long tradition of criticisms of Chu Yuan for his unbending nature. Chu Yuan, however, goes for a second opinion to the deified sage king Shun at his tomb in southern Chu. Chu Yuan cites a long string of historical examples showing that the wicked come to ruin and the virtuous prosper. He then sets off into a flight on an airborne chariot, making a circuit of the cosmos in search of a mate, always a woman. This is understood as looking for a ruler who appreciates him. At dawn I loosed wheel block there by Tong Yu, and by twilight I reached the gardens of air. I wished to bide a while by the windows of gods, but swift was the sun, and it soon would be dusk. 
I bade sun-driver Xihe to pause in her pace, to stand off from Yanzi and not to draw nigh. On and on stretched my road, long it was and far. I would go high and go low in the search that I made. I watered my horses in the pool of Xi'an and twisted the reins on the tree Fusong. Snapped a branch of the royal tree to block out the sun. I roamed freely a while and lingered there. Ahead went Wang Shu to speed on before me. Behind came Fei Lian. He dashed in my train. Phoenix went first and warned of my coming. Thundermaster told me that all was not set. I bade my phoenixes to mount up in flight, to continue their going both by day and by night. Then the whirlwinds massed, drawing together. They marshaled cloud rainbows, came to withstand me. A bewildering tumult, first apart, then agreeing. And they streamed flashing colors, high and then low. I bade the god's gatekeeper to open the bar. He stood blocking the gateway and stared at me. The moment grew dimmer, light soon would be done. I plate orchids, standing there long. An age foul and murky cannot tell things apart. It loves to block beauty from malice and spite. At dawn I set to fare across the white waters. I climbed Mount Longfen, there tethered my horses. All at once I looked back, my tears were streaming, sad that the high hill lacked any woman. At once I went roaming to the Palace of Spring. I snapped sprays of garnet to add to my pendants. Before the bloom's glory had fallen away, I would divine a woman below on whom to bestow them. He's moving in time as well as space. A series of proposed matches with women below all fail and all involve women of legendary antiquity, including one of his own female ancestors in the Gaoyang lineage. After these failures, he is filled with doubts and consults a shaman, Holy Fen, who tells him to continue his search. Again, he seeks a second opinion from another deified shaman, Shaman Xian, who descends from heaven and also tells him to continue his search, this time with a series of examples of rulers who found worthy ministers. Even in the Li Sao itself, we have the parallel between seeking a woman as a maid and a ruler finding a worthy minister. This is followed by one of the darker passages in which the aromatic plants, always the symbol of virtue, change. My pendants of garnet, how they dangle down from me, yet the throngs would dim them, cover them over. 
These men of faction are wanting in faith. I fear their spite and malice, that they will break them. The times are in tumult, ever transforming. How then may a man linger here long? Orchid, angelica change, they become sweet no more. Iris and basil alter, they turn into straw. How do plants that smelled sweet in days gone by now straight away become but stinking weeds? Can there be any reason other than this? The harm that is worked by no love for the fair. I once thought that orchid could be steadfast. It bore me no fruit, it was all show. Forsaking its beauty, it followed the common, but wrongly is ranked in the hosts of sweet scent. Pepper is master of fawning, it is swaggering, reckless. Only mock pepper stuffs sachets hung from waists. It pressed hard to advance, it struggled for favor. What sweet scent remains that is able to spread? Truly, ways of these times are willful and loose. Who now is able to avoid being changed? Viewing orchid and pepper, seeing them thus, will less be true of lovage and wintergreen. Then I massed all my chariots, a thousand strong, jade hubs lined even, we galloped together. I hitched my eight dragons, heaving and coiling, and bore my cloud banners streaming behind. I then quelled my will and slackened my pace. The gods galloped high, far to the distance. They were playing nine songs and dancing the shawl, making use of this day to take their delight. I was mounting aloft to such dazzling splendor. All at once I peered down to my homeland of old. My driver grew sad. My horses felt care. They flexed looking backward and would not go on. The coda. It is done now forever. In the domain there is no one, no one who knows me. Then why should I cherish that city, my home? Since no one can join me in making good rule, I will go off to seek where Pen Xian dwells.